Our next guest is an international human rights lawyer based in Toronto. She is the author of Not Immune, Exploring Liability of Authoritarian Regimes for the COVID-19 Pandemic and Its Cover-Up. And our guest, Sarah Teach, along with her colleague, David Mattis, wrote a piece in the Toronto Sun the other day entitled Hold China and Iran Accountable for Their Cover-Ups. Easier said than done, I suspect. Sarah Teach, good morning and welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us, Sarah. It's a monumental task you assign to your fellow Canadians, but you ask by way of setting us up for this, how do we present, uh, prevent rather future cover-ups like we saw with COVID-19? Attribute responsibility. Bring the perpetrators to justice. Make wrongdoers pay for the damage they've caused. You write, along with your partner, Mr. David Mattis. Let's talk about the cover-up. First, let's talk about the crime, Sarah, because it is monumental. It's absolutely massive. And the fact is, we've all known that there was a cover-up right from the get-go, haven't we? Yes, we have. And the evidence, it keeps growing. And what a lot of people, I think, don't realize right off the bat is that this is internationally illegal. How so? Well, the Human Right to Health is enshrined in multiple international conventions. China is a party to those conventions. Iran is as well. And that, those, um, those conventions require states to protect the right to health of their citizens and those around the world. It also requires states to not engage in cover-ups like we saw with the COVID-19 crisis. A lot of people are making a great deal, Sarah, about the connection between China and its attempt to cover up the outbreak of COVID-19 and China's interfering with the World Health Organization as it attempted to cope with the outbreak of COVID-19 and uh, trying to suppress world health information uh, from getting out as well. Was it a double cover-up in that sense? In a sense, perhaps. The situation is obviously still evolving and we we have new information all of the time. Just look at the interview by Dr. Li Men Yang. That came out the day before my Not Immune report was published. So I suspect the evidence will just keep coming out as to the depth of this cover-up. Okay, so let's talk about the interview that you just alluded to, because not everyone listening to us right now is aware of it. What new information has come out quite recently, Sarah? That interview really confirmed what we were suspecting, actually, for a while, which was that the Chinese Communist Party was aware that the virus existed, it was aware that there was human-to-human transition back in 2019, Mm -hmm. and silenced the medical whistleblowers who tried to sound the alarm. In fact, of course, there was a a young doctor who uh, was very quick off the mark to identify COVID-19 and uh, was suppressed for his efforts and ended up dying of of the virus himself. This is a true story, isn't it? Yes, it is. So how long ago was that? When Give us some kind of timeline, Sarah. We've been going at this so long, so many of us are bouncing off the walls, finding it difficult to even remember what day it is. Uh, we we kind of lose touch with all of this. We've been locked down since roughly mid-March. So take us back before then and remind us of when this first happened and when we first found out about it, because there's the first gap right there, isn't it? Yes, exactly. It's looking like actually the first cases go back to 
as early as November 2019 in China. And interestingly, we didn't we weren't aware of this as an international community until January 2020, the end of January at that. So this really has been going on for a long time. So that gives them, if, if the case, if your timeline is, is correct, we're talking, say, mid-November to uh, January when we started to find out, there's about a two-month gap between identifying the problem on the ground at the point of origin and the rest of the world catching up to that fact. There's about two months that went by in, those, uh, in that time, correct? Exactly, yes. And in December 2019, say the... Uh, Chinese Communist Party wasn't quite aware of the the extent of the problem right away with you know patient zero, but as early as December 2019, they were aware of human to human transition. Those are the allegations by the doctors in China, the whistleblowers. Right. So that really translates to about a month of cover up, at least. Okay, so now, and you say that under the some of these uh, international obligations that China is indeed a signatory to, Sarah, they were required by the terms and conditions of belonging to these groups to uh, um, uh, notify uh, fellow group members, indeed the world community, that this outbreak had occurred, and they did exactly the opposite. They tried to suppress all information regarding the pandemic in its early phases, didn't they? Yes, exactly. This this is a pretty clear breach of the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, which enshrines the human right to health. This is also a pretty clear breach of the international health regulations that China is a signatory to. Okay, Counselor. So you're building your case. <laughs> the jury is listening. Now, right. how, how do we go about the tough part? It, it's, I mean, it's easy to write about, but how do we, I'm, again, I'm, I'm referring back to your uh, article that you and David wrote a few days ago. Uh, okay, so how do we prevent future cover-ups like this? We attribute responsibility. We bring perpetrators to justice. We make wrongdoers pay for the damage they've caused. Uh, Okay, all very well and good. And I don't imagine you'd find many Canadians disagreeing with you, Sarah. But how on earth do you go about even beginning the process when you're dealing with a country that doesn't give a hoot what we think? Right. So that's the general problem with international law, isn't it? Is that there's limitations on enforcement. That being said, there are a number of things we can do. And Anyone interested, by the way, I would encourage to read the larger report on which the op-ed is based, uh, not immune as you, as you referenced. And in that larger report, it's about 140 pages. I really outlined 15 ways that we can attempt to hold these governments to account for the damage. Okay. So some of those relate to the particular breaches. For example, an alleged breach of the human right to health can be brought to the UN human rights bodies. Granted, with China's position on some of those bodies, practically that may not go anywhere, Mm -hmm. but it would be an important step in, you know, if nothing else, naming and shaming. Breach of the international health regulations can be brought to the World Health Organization or the World Health Assembly, which is the decision-making body of the WHO. Right. Uh, This can also be brought to the International Court of Justice. And even if China or Iran doesn't consent to a case being heard, we can seek an advisory opinion. And that could have significant persuasive effect. We can also bring this to the World Trade Organization if we frame this as a trade-related dispute, which I make the argument in my report that I I believe that we can. Then there are a number of things we can do domestically as well. We can use the Magnitsky Act, which enables uh, Canada to place sanctions on officials that have engaged in human rights abuses. 
we can use uh, our domestic courts to launch domestic lawsuits. That's really what the U.S. has been focusing on. Right. I'm not quite sure it's in our culture to be so litigious, and uh, that's a whole much longer conversation about whether or not that would be a good idea. Um, but that, those are those are things we could do as well. We could also use our Special Economic Measures Act to sanction the government directly. I'd like to come back for a moment, if you don't mind, Sarah, to this whole Magnitsky law, because it's come up in conversation a great deal. When when Canadians look around for ways in which we can realistically retaliate and in some way perhaps cause China to lose face, and that's a big deal for them, the Magnitsky Act comes up constantly. So remind our listeners this morning exactly what the, what that allows us to do. Sure. So the Magnitsky Act enables the Canadian government to place sanctions on foreign officials that have engaged in human rights abuses, uh, extrajudicial judicial killings, torture, silencing whistleblowers are among the option, the um, uh, circumstances in which we can impose Magnitsky sanctions. And those sanctions involve uh, property blocking sanctions and uh, immigration sanctions. So these officials can't come to Canada they can't engage in financial transactions or buy a property, and it prohibits Canadians from certain financial dealings with those people. And would it also see, for example, foreign nationals living in Canada convicted under the Act being expelled? In some cases, yes, it could. Okay, so it does have some teeth. It does, yes. Uh, Is this the most likely route that Canadians could take? It certainly would be easy in a sense that it's legislation that we already have. There's a very strong case, in my opinion, that for those sanctions to be imposed. However, our government hasn't actually imposed sanctions under the Magnitsky Act against any Chinese officials. So there's, you know, political will at play as well. It's well, not just a legal possibility. I'm Sterling Fox, joined from Toronto by international human rights lawyer Sarah Teach, uh, who uh, co-wrote a piece in the Toronto Sun uh, called uh, Hold, Tura- Hold China and Iran Accountable for Their Cover-Ups. And then they ask, how do we prevent future cover-ups like we saw with COVID-19? Well, you attribute responsibility, you bring the perpetrators to justice, and you make wrongdoers pay for the damage say Sarah and her colleague David Mattis. Uh, Sarah, we were talking just before the break about Canada's role in all of this. We are not a major player. We are, um, they, we like to think of ourselves as a soft power, and yet we're being, and uh, there are numerous recent polls to back this up. We are a little exasperated as a people at our government trying perhaps, Sarah, to be too soft a power and coming across as utterly ineffective with respect to dealing with China on most levels. Canadians are very frustrated by this. We see where the, where the wrongdoing occurred, and we see very little consequences being demanded by Canada. Uh, Australia's been much more aggressive than we have, haven't they? Yes, absolutely. Everyone's been more aggressive than we have when it comes to... Uh China policy so far. And Australia has suffered consequences. They have had economic sanctions placed on them, and there was, uh, to quote their Australian Prime Minister, a state actor attack 
on uh, on Australia's infrastructure uh, through uh, it was a cyber attack. China is not taking this lying down, and and, and so uh, are we just afraid that uh, of retaliation by China if we speak up? Is that sort of the bottom line? What do you think here, Sarah? Well, it's a good question, and it's hard to speculate, right? It could be, you know, it could be partly fear of retaliation. It could be also our supply chain dependence. There could be many factors, but I think what we need to start realizing is that no matter what we do, we're going to face some retaliation from China anyways. Look at the two Michaels. Look at COVID. Sure. Right? So we, this is a nice opportunity to rethink and reset our relationship. And because, uh, and you pay as much attention to the polls as anyone else, and I, I'm sure uh, take some comfort in terms of the position you've very publicly adopted on this, that a lot of Canadians, in fact, a whacking huge majority of Canadians are in your corner on this one, Sarah. I certainly think so. So what, what, what would you, in a perfect world, being the foreign policy advisor to the cabinet, recommend the Trudeau government do? Well, I'll start with a compliment. I'm I'm very pleased that the Trudeau government has not engaged in hostage diplomacy as requested recently, and is continuing on with the extradition uh, proceedings of uh, of uh, Meng. It's incredibly important that our judicial system may maintain independence from politics. And okay. I'm very happy and pleased that that stance is being taken. Right. Beyond that, I would immediately suspend, uh, I mean, uh, suspend uh, Huawei's operation in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, they should not be allowed to build the 5G network. I would uh, impose Magnitsky sanctions. Certainly, that would be the first quite easy thing to do in response to both the COVID cover-up and also the atroc- atrocities we're seeing in the Xinjiang region, um, as well as uh, the new Hong Kong security law mm-hmm. that was happening in Tibet. So I would definitely utilize Magnitsky to start. And... I would really just engage in a serious rethink uh, on our diplomatic relationship with China moving forward and put together a comprehensive strategy. Well, you know, I, I would think probably the bottom line, and you've done a lot more homework on this than, than most of us put together, talking about the 120-page original version of this report, for example, uh, that uh, the, the notion of, uh, of somehow or another disconnecting from China, while it sounds uh, satisfying to many, uh, the reality is we are, we are hyper-dependent on China. We've allowed China to infiltrate every aspect of Canadian Canadian life, right down to and including our campuses, which uh, the Canadian University and post-secondary system, Sarah, makes ridiculous dollars off foreign students, many of whom are from China every year, plus all those research and development grants to Canadian post-secondary institutions, uh, and on and on it goes. We are pretty beholden to them uh, on account of they've been pretty deliberate about making sure that sometime down the way we would be. It seems to be that they've accomplished a great deal more than we have so far. That's very true, yes. So how do we start? It's a great question. That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Uh, I I would start by pushing, as Australia has, for an international independent investigation into COVID and the cover-up. Okay. And apply uh, pressure through a variety of avenues on the Chinese government relating to their COVID cover-up and also uh, other issues as well, like the Uyghur issue. So that's probably, those are probably the first things that I would do. 
All right. Now, one other point that I'd like to just include towards the end of the conversation, because we really haven't talked about Iran at all. And you hold China and Iran uh, at equal, um, in, in, equally culpable in terms of the degrees to which both countries covered up the outbreaks of COVID-19. It happened first in China. And then we were, frankly, amazed that the next outbreak came so far away from China in Iran. So uh, have they been equal in terms of their suppression of information? They've certainly been equal in terms of uh, the fact that they both have have engaged in cover-up and silencing of medical whistleblowers. That being said, the virus did not originate in Iran, so level of culpability isn't isn't the same. It can't be the same. But we have seen uh, pretty shocking parallels, and uh, the cover-up by Iran was the subject of a, a letter written by 21 Nobel laureates, uh, which hasn't seemed to receive a lot of press, but that letter is out there, it's online, and the Iranian cover-up was the subject of it. And these Nobel laureates were calling on the international community to hold that government to account as well uh, and look into the COVID cover-up. They also have been silencing medical whistleblowers. So it's, it's almost the same situation in terms of the actions they've taken and those actions that are in breach of international legal obligations. And here we learned just a couple of days ago, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia has sent a hit squad to Canada to take out some political enemy from back home, uh, as is the case with China. We're dealing with some pretty ruthless regimes that really don't care what we think or feel about just about anything, Sarah. That's a kind of a tougher uh, uh, exterior to get through, isn't it? Yes, that's true. I do think they care a little, at least. Otherwise, they wouldn't be sending these squads, would they? Uh, I think we we tend to have a stronger voice than we give ourselves credit for in Canada. People people listen to us. Oh, well, that's that's encouraging to hear. Uh, Were you surprised, by the way, final question to you, and it sort of relates in a vague way. Were you surprised that Canada did not get uh, its uh, seat on the the two-year seat on the Security Council, given your point about people listening to Canada? Not particularly. I think that's a different, different, there's a different reason why, though. The other contenders engaged in these long campaigns for the seat, and we seem to sort of put ours together haphazardly, more or less at the last minute. So that doesn't really surprise me uh, at all. Two completely a, different files. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so Sarah, you mentioned this is a longie, uh, and we've been talking about the, Van- the uh, Toronto Sun uh, uh, shortened version of the piece. Where do our listeners go to dive right into the, the full meal deal that you've uh, published here? Would it be at the McDonald Laurier Institute website? Yes, it's on the McDonald Laurier Institute website. And if uh, 138 pages is a little too long, but the 600 words in the sun is a little too short, uh, there's about 15 pages right at the front of that large publication. That's effectively a long summary. Excellent. Okay. Well, it's really good work, Sarah. You've done a, a ton of work on this. I appreciate your joining us this morning, and I'd love the opportunity to talk to you again because this file, of course, is going to remain open for quite some time. And, and you're talking to a person here who's paying a lot of attention to China and hoping fellow Canadians will continue to do so. We appreciate your joining us today very much. Thanks, Sarah. 
Thank you. Sarah Teach, and you can read her report at the McDonald Laurier Institute website, which is mcdonaldlaurier.ca. And it's a real pleasure to welcome our next guest back to the program. Our next guest is the former ambassador of the United States to Canada. He was last with us on Canada Day, and we had a terrific visit. A real pleasure to welcome Bruce Heyman back to the program. Ambassador, good morning and welcome back, Bruce. Good morning, Vancouver. How are you today? <laughs> we are great, thanks. And I should mention you, along with your wife, Vicki, co-authored a book about a year and a half ago called The Art of Diplomacy, Strengthening the Canada-U.S. Relationship in Times of Uncertainty. And I, my, a year and a half ago, uh, time, if times were uncertain a year and a half ago, Bruce, what are they today? Uh, they're challenged. Uh, they're stressed. And we have a president who, for whatever reason, which I do not know, has taken um, has taken the the time to poke Canada at every twist and turn. And he's done this for three and a half years. Remember, he he started off first of all, he never made an official visit to Canada. Right. He then did the G7 meeting, which he came late, left early, tore up the statement, which was then followed by these awful comments from the White House about a special place and you know where for the prime minister of Canada. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, uh, tariffs on steel, aluminum, he threatened your auto industry. And then as if that wasn't all enough and you thought things were on the mend, there was all this talk about potentially putting troops at the border, at the border right, and yeah. then the N90, the N95 mass. And now this week, this week, he goes back to his 2016, 17 playbook and blames Canada for, you know, uh, the ills of everything. And so he goes out and starts a new tariff on, on aluminum. And this is just, it's politics. It's Donald Trump, but it's really impacting our relationship. And the Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland, yesterday said, well, of course we're going to retaliate. And here's the sum. It's uh, $3.26 billion. This, what the, uh, this is what the, the tariffs represent from Trump. So we're going to retaliate to the tune of almost to the penny uh, in, in, in ways that will yet to be announced. Is it right for Canada to poke the bear and give the, expand the stage and turn up the big silver spotlight? That's what he wants. Uh, have we no choice yeah, but to retaliate? Bruce, what's the deal here? So, you know, in, in when you're a leader of a country and someone pokes your country, you have to walk this fine line. And that fine line is on one side of that fine line is not responding and looking weak. Yeah. The other side of the fine line is hitting back too hard and exacerbating a potential in this case, a trade war. And so I think that, you know, we'll see because I don't have any idea how Donald Trump's going to react. Mm -hmm. I mean, we heard premier Ford come out and say that, you know, he believes the next move would be the U S would go at steel. And I don't know whether that's true or not, but I do know um, that, that the best comment that I think the deputy prime minister made, which I think tells everybody where this relationship is, is she said, we're going to hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Right, right. Now, 
where, where in the history of U.S.-Canada were we sitting there hoping for the best and preparing for the worst? Um, it was hoping for the best and working hard to making sure the best happened and never worrying about the worst. The worst happens uh, with adversaries. And so it's, it's quite disappointing. It's a, tough, it's a tough week for U.S.-Canada relations, and I hope uh, we don't go down too too much of a slippery slope here between now and the election. Ambassador, when you and I talked on Canada Day, and we are grateful, by the way, for your appearance on a big day like that, we, we didn't spend a great deal of time um, because we had other issues to talk about. Uh, but the Voter Abroad Initiative, you raised towards right. the end of our conversation on Canada Day. Now, that's history. It's water under the bridge. So now we can talk about the Voter Abroad Initiative. You and your wife, Vicki, are very much a part of the Biden campaign and very much a part of the voter abroad portion of the Biden campaign. What exactly does that mean, the voter abroad initiative? Well, thanks for asking. Um, this is something that has never really been focused on by a presidential campaign. And part of the reason is that if you think about it, uh, voters abroad, they don't they don't have any members of Congress. They don't have any senators and they don't have a governor. They don't have any electoral votes directly as a collective voter sure. abroad. Uh, but yet there are millions of Americans living outside the United States. In 2016, the State Department estimated there were nine million plus Americans living outside the United States, which would have made it about the 11th largest state. Hmm. And. So what ends up happening is, and we estimate that if there are nine, about six and a half million, because some are children and so forth can't vote, but six and a half million would be able to vote. And historically, just so everybody has a context of this, on average, about 7% vote, seven, like, you know, like almost nothing. Mm -hmm. So 7%, really small numbers. And so we looked at that and really did an analysis and went to the Biden campaign and said, hey, raising our hand. And it's, it's good to be picked when nobody else is raising their yeah. hand for something. You, <laughs> don't right. char- you don't charge them any money to do it. That's so, right. hey, how about pick me? Um, so we said, look, we, we would like to run with this effort and engage Americans living all over the world um, to register to vote. Go to votefromabroad.org, register to vote. People say, well, where do you register? Like, well, how does that work? Well, you go on and you put in the last address where you last lived in the United States. Even if that place you last lived was 50 years ago and right now Walmart's on top of it or something else, mm-hmm. that's the address you use. And that's where your voting polling place actually is by federal law. That's where it is. And you register and you get your ballot. And you ask for your ballot back by email. And by federal law, they have to send it to you 45 days in advance of the election. So September 19th, which is coming up right around the corner, you'll get your ballot to vote for president right there in your email. And uh, you fill it out. And um, a lot of states, you can just email it back. Some states fax. And some states, you have to send it actually back. So in 2016, um, about a million people requested ballots but because they didn't turn them either send them back on time or didn't sign them or they just left them in their email box only half of those were actually counted Uh as ballots Mm -hmm. so 
you know, you could double the output by just having the same people get the ballots and send them back. Um, so then we look at where people vote. And what, as it turns out, there are a lot of people from a lot of swing states all over, all over the world that could actually, I've made the argument to the campaign that I think that all things being equal, if the math looked the same as it did for Hillary, that Americans living abroad could have won that election hmm. and that Americans living abroad can be key factors in, you know, Senate races and down ballot races as well. Um, the country with the largest number of Americans living outside the United is States is Canada. Canada and, and most Canada. most Americans. Canada. And is it is it not the case, Bruce, that the largest single population group of Americans in Canada is in Alberta? Well, that's a good question. We we don't have that analysis, but it may very well be. Um, it may very well be. There are large numbers of Americans living in Toronto, mm-hmm, yeah. in Montreal, in Vancouver, in Ottawa, in, you know, even, strangely, there, there's a bit of history here. You know, there was a, a whole long time that we... Now that we don't even have non-essential travel, but there was a whole long time that the border was actually just, you just drove across. Mm -hmm. And in many small towns across the Canadian border, there weren't hospitals nearby. The closest hospital was across just over in the United States. So many people were born in the United States. And by U.S. law, if you're born in the United States, guess what? You get to be a U.S. citizen. Interesting. And so even if you just drove over, you were born and went back. Uh, home, um, those are citizens as well and have the right to vote. And think about this. Do we have a big competitive race going on in Maine? Um, could be could be people in New Brunswick, uh, that competitive race in Maine for Senate. Um, uh, could be people in New Brunswick and in um, Nova Scotia, True. in that region, could very well flip that Senate seat. And Michigan, think about that Ambassador Bridge right over there at Windsor. Sure. Um, you know, Hillary lost uh, Michigan by less than 11,000 votes. And I, I just will postulate that there are that many Michiganders uh, living, you know, in Ontario and could easily have won the state of Michigan had they voted. Interesting. And then, then, of course, you've got a big Senate race up in Montana here um, and uh, with Governor Bullock running for Senate. And so, you know, I, Americans... And strangely enough, and I and I said this last night on the national CBC News, I said, wouldn't that be something if Canadians, um, Americans living in Canada actually determined who the next president of the United States was? Our guest is former United States ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman. Now, Bruce, I know you spent a great deal of your life in Ohio. So here you have your Toronto Maple Leafs and your Columbus Blue Jackets going into game five tomorrow. Who are you cheering for? So I, I'll tell you what, because I'm no longer in an official capacity, I can root for Canadian teams. So I, I, I'm going to go with every Canadian team except for one. And since I've spent the last 40 years in Chicago, I've got to stick with the Blackhawks. But, you know, we do have a number of Canadian, great Canadian players. So I, I feel like I'm covering all bases here. And uh, I would love 
if the Blackhawks can't get the Stanley Cup again, I'd love to see it come back to Canada. Well, we appreciate the uh, the sentiment very much. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this uh, Voter Abroad Initiative and VoteAbroad.org. I spent some time on that uh, website during the break. Uh, you, uh, you can request an email ballot, and you've described how various states process those ballots from uh, Americans living abroad who are eligible to vote. The President of the United States is on a very distinct, very direct anti-male campaign, except, of course, for Florida, where he happens to live. And he uh, did vote by mail last election in 2018. However, that reality aside, he's against it, except, of course, when it suits his needs. So is this effort by voter abroad email ballots? And in some cases, you pointed out they do actually have to be mailed to you. The president is not going to like this. Is he going to try to suppress this or in some way undermine it too as um, being uh, rigged his favorite word oh so i'm going to use his language because i you know so it he seems to try to thread the needle remember he sent a he sent this tweet out he goes absentee ballot is good vote vote by mail is bad okay it's the same thing yeah right but but the protections for Americans living outside the United States is a law that was passed in 1986. And the law is called the Uniformed, as in military, and Overseas Citizen Absentee Voter Act. And so I consider this all absentee ballots, and which is what the president likes. He loves absentee ballots, so he says. Right. And yes, some of these absentee ballots have to be returned by email, some by fax, and some by hard mail. Now, my bigger issue is not what he's going to do. It's what the pandemic's going to do. So let me lay this out. You talk about challenges. So in about 80 countries in the world today, there is no international mail service because of the pandemic. Right. And... In many of those countries, the U.S. Embassy and consulates, their American citizen services are also shut down. So if you live in one of those countries, you've applied, you get your ballot, it shows up in your email box, and you've got to turn it around and send it back hard copy, and there's no mail service, and there's no ability to drop it off at the embassy or consulate, we've got a problem. And so I'm working on trying to find solutions to that. Um, But there's an article in Time magazine this weekend that talks about a potential second wave in Europe. Yes. Um, And that's coming like now, like it's the numbers are starting to pick up now. And they're speculating whether this is, in fact, the beginning of a next wave for Europe. Now, Europe has a lot of Americans and in the millions. And I cannot afford to have international mail service shut down throughout Europe. I'm blessed that Canada's mail service is working. And uh, I, you know, remember, you'll get this September 19th, you get your ballot. And we're just encouraging people, you know, my guess is you're not still speculating who you're voting for at this stage of the game. And if you are, call me. Um, But in all seriousness, get that ballot back right away. 
All right, Bruce, I have to leave it there because I'm fresh out of time. And as always, I am grateful for yours. We do appreciate this uh, this phone call and uh, an opportunity to speak to you again. It's an important time we're heading towards. And I have a feeling before November 3rd, you and I will, with a little bit of luck, chat again. Thanks for this morning, Bruce. I look forward to it. Thank you. Be healthy, everyone. Votefromabroad.org. VoteFromAbroad.org. Former U.S. Ambassador Bruce Heyman. This week, the Minister of Fisheries, Oceans, and the Canadian Coast Guard, the Honorable Bernadette Jordan, announced the Fish Harvester Benefit and Fish Harvester Grant programs, totaling almost $470 million, will open for applications on August 24th and run through to September 21st. Our next guest this morning is the Member of Parliament for South Shore St. Margaret's in Newfoundland and Labrador. She is the Minister of Fisheries, Oceans, and the Canadian Coast Guard. It's a pleasure to welcome Bernadette Jordan to The Morning Show. Minister, good morning and thank you for joining us. Hi, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Can well, I make a correction? I'm actually from Nova Scotia, not Newfoundland and Labrador. <laughs> oh, that's right. You are indeed. And, and whereabouts? <laughs> now, uh, t- Julie said that you were uh, you were in Nova Scotia this morning. Whereabouts in the province are you? I live on the south shore of Nova Scotia, so, outside of Lunenburg. So, okay, right down in Lunenburg area. Okay, so tell us about yeah. the these two programs. You were here in Vancouver a couple of weeks ago. You spoke to the Board of Trade, and uh, we've spent a lot of time with people in the fisheries on our program, Minister, over the past few months, talking about what needs they have and how that might be those needs or at least some of them might be met by government programs similar to those announced for other sectors of the economy so let's talk about the two uh, and then we'll start with the fish harvester benefit program first minister tell us about that Absolutely. Well, first of all, Sterling, one of the reasons that we develop these programs is we, because we know that the, the fishing sector, uh, the way their enterprises are set up is very different from uh, a lot of other businesses. So we wanted to make sure that we built a unique program for fish, for the fishery. Mm-hmm. They were not qualifying for things like the wage subsidy and the emergency uh, business account. Right. So the, the, the way that this is actually one program, but two funding streams. There's the grant program and the benefits program. Um, the benefit program is for uh, basically captain and share crew of any fishing vessel. Uh, so, for example, if a crew member gets paid based on a share as opposed to a wage, mm-hmm. then they are able to apply for this benefit. It's uh, $10,164. They just have to show a 25% loss from um, previous seasons. And because we know that in British Columbia, there were, specifically, there were some challenges in 2019, they did not have a great season, we made sure they were able to go back to 2018 as well and make their, their benefit payments based on, or their benefit applications based on those years as well. Okay, so that's the benefit program. Uh, and if you're able to produce the evidence, uh, then you will be uh, allowed. Is it 10000 up to $10,000? And is that a one-time payment, Minister, or is it stretched out over a series of payments? How do the, how do the individual fisher people get paid? So we know that in, in British Columbia, the seasons are still ongoing. Yeah. So they can actually base this application on their predictable on their predicted losses. Um, so we know that, you know, this has been a tough season for everybody. We know that there's been a real challenges with export markets, uh, you know, basically closing down with um, restaurants closing down. So we know that people have faced losses. They can get 60% of the benefit now. And then the other 40% when they file their taxes and we can reconcile the fact that they did have that 25% loss. 
So we're making it so that they can apply now right away and get funding within five days of their application. Um, that's going to help get them through a really tough time, and then they'll be able to collect the rest of it once, they're, once they file their taxes. Okay, so that's the fish harvester benefit portion of the program. And as I said, the, the rounding off number for the, the funding on this whole thing is $470 million. It's a shade under, but let's use that round number. Of that $470 million, what does the fish harvester benefit portion represent? Oh, wow, that's actually a really good question. I, I mean, I know the, the, the numbers are for um, both the benefit and the grant. Uh, the grant, of course, is, is a, a little different because it's available to anyone who holds a, 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 self, a self-employed fish license, okay. basically, a self-employed fisher. Uh, and it's a $10,000 one-time grant that they're able to collect based on um, the fact that we know that they're seeing a lot of expenses. They're the ones who run the boats. They're the ones who have to pay the insurance and pay for the, you know, the, the gear and, and uh, all of that. So we wanted to make sure that that was available to them as well. I'm sorry, I don't have the breakdown of how much each one is uh, specifically, but the, um, the, the grant is available as a, a, to, the, to the self-employed fish harvester who is able to hold the license and, and get some extra help as well. Okay, so the applications for both of these begin on August 24th, just a couple of weeks from now. The application period remains open through to September 21st. Uh, and you're saying that if the uh, application is properly filed and all the boxes are checked, it should take an individual uh, around five days or so to receive payment uh, from this uh, pending application. That's correct. They will. They would receive payment uh, either in their directly deposited in their bank account, or the check would be in the mail within five days, depending on how they choose to receive the funds. Uh, we've made this as simple as possible. Um, it's it's basically you know we need their their license number, we need uh, the name, address, their social insurance number, and of course their um, their estimated earnings from or their earnings from previous years mm-hmm. and their their expected earnings this year so that this gives them a chance to put their information together that they need they can go on the website and um find the information that they need and apply august 24th i know that there has been um some people who feel that a month isn't long enough to to have this application open for uh and you know we, we we have said for, as, from the start as a government that we continue to monitor programs. We, we check things uh, along the way, see how things are going, and there is the ability for that to increase if we need to do that. Minister, I want to change gears on you just because I only have a couple of minutes left, and this is a, a topic here on the West Coast that, as you're keenly aware, is a big deal. Uh, talking aquaculture and fish farms. Uh, a lot of movement in recent years to see fish farms moved out of the ocean and on land. Land. Uh, same uh, water flow and all the rest of this. Te- the technology is easily doable, uh, and it's it would prevent a lot of open ocean uh, disease transmission and and other things. I wonder what the ministry today uh, is doing or thinking about aquaculture, particularly here on the west coast, going forward. Absolutely. You know, I mean, we made a mandate commitment uh, with regards to open pen fish farms um, uh, for, you know, transitioning by 2025. We are looking at different ways. Of course, in the context of COVID-19, there has been some challenges in of terms of, of doing things like consultations and uh, uh, making sure that we have all of our uh, our I's dotted and T's crossed. We do have to work, of course, in, in collaboration with the provinces, with First Nations, with industry, with stakeholders in order to do this. Um, but it is, a, it is a commitment that we made and one that we are committed to. 
and uh, the timeline is 2025. That was your established timeline a few years ago, and you're still aiming to have, and, and the idea being what? By 2025, no more open ocean, open pen um, um, fish farming on the West Coast? Those are, you know, I mean, those are all questions that we are we are currently looking at. What does this look like? Um, is it hybrid models? Is it moving to close containment? Is it, you know, there's all different challenges that we have to look at in terms of having the pens in the ocean. Um, but we are definitely, like I said, committed to the 2025 goal. Uh, as I said, we, we have had to shift gears a little bit in the last few months, but we are starting to get back on track and looking at what our what our long term plans are and and uh, having a you know, benchmarks available to show that we are making we are making uh, things work in this uh, this area. And Bernadette, I'm told that when you were here in BC recently, they took you out to the middle of nowhere to where the uh, the Fraser River collapsed, <laughs> and uh, and you had a, a firsthand look at the work that's being done to uh, reopen the, the Fraser River and, of course, the flow of salmon uh, through the province. Uh, what was your impression of the work that's being done and the timeline attached to it? I think the big bar uh, situation is is a is an extremely impressive story. It's something that you know we've seen everyone coming together because we know how important the Fraser River Chinook and, and the Fraser River salmon are right. um, to to the culture of BC, and we want to make sure that we do everything we can to make sure that those fish get through. Uh, I know that the Whoosh system or the fish cannon, as people have have termed it is now up and running and that there are hundreds of fish going through that Mm -hmm. every day so that's a that's a great thing to have happen um the magnitude of this slide was like nothing we had ever seen since hell's gate right and it was uh an engineering feat to be able to um you know blast some of the rock away clear the area it's going to be an ongoing project but it is something we are committed to because we know how important those fish are and we want to make sure that they get through all right. I, I have to leave it there. I'm out of time. I'm grateful for yours from Lunenburg this morning, Bernadette Jordan. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you, and hopefully we'll have a, a chance to do so down the road. Thanks for joining us today. Okay. Bernadette Thank Jordan. You, Sterling. Oh, have my pleasure. Day. Bernadette Jordan is the uh, member of parliament for South Shore St. Margaret's, Nova Scotia, and Canada's Minister of Fisheries, Oceans, and the Coast Guard. Uh, joining us live this morning with more on the Fish Harvester Grant program. It's a nice, warm, sunny day, and the vet is back. It's a pleasure to welcome back Dr. Lauren Edelman from Canada West Veterinary Specialists in East Vancouver. Dr. Edelman, Lauren, good morning. Welcome back. Thank you. Good morning to you, too. That's good to have you with us. And we got a press release, Andrew and Julie and I, a few days ago, talking about COVID-19 and the increasing need for pet insurance. So before we get to pet insurance, I have to ask you the very same first question I asked you last time you were with us, Lauren. Let's talk first and foremost about pets and COVID-19. There was a picture on the Internet yesterday of an incredibly handsome German shepherd who was said to have died from COVID-19. He was somewhere here in North America. Uh, Pretty rare, I would assume, but still scared the heck out of a lot of pet owners. Yeah, and I think that's definitely still up for debate. That was one of the first animals in North America that actually tested positive for COVID-19. But the dog also has suspicions for having other illnesses that could have contributed to his death, Uh like, for instance, cancer. Okay. So, you know, I, I think that's definitely something we're going to still learn more information about. But 
I wouldn't be jumping to any conclusions that that pet died directly as a result of their COVID-19. And, and that was your response first time around many weeks ago, you know, to be yeah. able to connect the, to connecting those two dots is simply not doable yet. And with yeah. any luck at all, Lauren, never will be. But let's now get back to your point about pet insurance. Connect those dots between COVID-19 and an increasing need for pet insurance, please. Yeah, so I guess the first thing to talk about would be, you know, we're all on social media, we're looking around, I feel like every other person I know is getting a puppy during this pandemic. No kidding, and I huh? think that Yeah, I think that just stems from the fact, you know, people are working from home for the foreseeable future, and, you know, it's now a time that people can invest into training puppies and kittens, whether they're adopting them, you know, from the SPCA or from a breeder, mm-hmm. and also just the companionship that, that those animals can provide you at home when you're working. Yep. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely been a huge rise in pet adoptions, and um, that's a great thing. We all love animals, and I think it's so wonderful that people are, are exploring that relationship. I do, too. Um, yeah. I mean, I own four animals myself, so <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm an avid animal lover, of course. So, you know, but with that, I think what people don't realize is that puppies and kittens get sick. It's, it's not just older animals that get sick. I mean, you think about babies, babies get sick all the time in human babies. Mm-hmm. And so, and in puppies and kittens, there are a lot of reasons why they can get sick. Um, you know, infectious diseases, various causes of diarrhea and vomiting are super common in puppies and kittens. Sure. Um, some of which we can try and prevent with vaccination, but others, you know, are just, they're out there. And we all know of that, uh, you know, six month old golden doodle who eats everything in sight. Uh, including things we probably shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a really common reason as well that, that pets can can come into the hospital because they've eaten something they shouldn't. And sometimes that can be a life-threatening emergency if it causes, you know, an intestinal obstruction, let's uh, say. Of course, and I suppose the other thing to consider is if you are actually looking at pet insurance as a realistic thing, then the younger the creature in your life the less expensive pet insurance is going to be. So if you are actually going to think about it, think about it while your creature is young because the premiums are so much lower. Absolutely. So, yeah, so the best time to get pet insurance is by far and away. Usually I actually recommend to my friends getting it before you actually pick up the animal. Oh, my. Okay. Um, Because sometimes you'll take them home and two days later they start showing signs of illness. So, so getting them beforehand is super helpful or at the time of adoption. And like you said, the premiums are going to be far less if you get it then. And also the big thing is pre-existing conditions. Sure. So, you know, if you get it on your two-year-old dog who's already been seen once for coughing, it depending on the pet insurance company and depending on the type of workup that was done, they may never cover coughing for your pet. Um, so getting it before any signs or symptoms, you're guaranteeing that you get the most illnesses covered. Give us a, a for example, a, a, a money figure, if you can, Dr. Edelman, please, for pet insurance for a puppy and for a kitten. I don't imagine they're identical. Yeah, and it depends on, I think there's a few things that it depends on. First of all, it's going to depend on the company that you go with. Of course. Um, some companies actually have like breed restrictions or things that they just absolutely won't cover for a certain breed because they are so common. Mm-hmm. So that can make your premiums higher. But I would say um, 
it also depends on how much of a deductible you want to pay for each condition. So if you put a $500 deductible, your monthly premium is going to be slightly higher than if you choose no deductible. So I would say the average person puts, you know, a $300 to $500 deductible. And for uh, a puppy or kitten, you're probably looking at somewhere around $50 a month, depending on the insurance company. Now, you can definitely get less than that or more than that. But that really depends on what other options, you know, what do you want in your coverage? Do you want just basic emergency, urgent illness coverage? Or do you want some of the more routine things to be covered as well, like dental care, um, you know, vaccinations, your general daily checkup? Sure. Now, you talked about social media right off the top of our conversation this morning. Where does one go to find uh, pet insurance? You go out, you, obviously, you're going to Google pet insurance, but do you buy it ultimately from the same person you buy your house insurance or your car insurance from, or is it a whole other thing? Some of the, some of the medical insurance companies have started to offer pet insurance as part of their, as part of their plans, but for the most part, these are independent companies. So, some, you know, big names would be True Panion, Pets Plus Us, Pet Secure. Those are some of the most common ones we see coming through our hospital at Canada West okay. in terms of companies. Um, so you just go on their website and most of them will offer you a free quote if you tell them, you know, about your pet, their age, their breed, um, kind of what type of deductible you want. Usually have to uh, adjustable deductibles mm-hmm. and you can get quotes and compare. But I would strongly urge owners to really read the fine print because being on the receiving side of these pet insurance companies, not all pet insurance is created equal. Aha. And you're the one that would know because you're the one that ultimately sees all the pets, uh, regardless of which insurance company is covering them. And so you're quite familiar with all of the names and uh, the varying degrees of service they can provide. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.